Welcome to Coastline. With each passing year, there are fewer people who can tell us what it was like to live through the rise of the Nazis in Germany, especially Jewish people who escaped the worst of the regime and made it to friendlier soil in the United States. Alfred Schnog was one of those people. As a seven-year-old, he watched through hotel room curtains as the Nazis gleefully destroyed Jewish-owned businesses. His parents had encouraged their young boys to watch, and they told them to never forget what they were seeing. He never did forget, and he told us the story in 2018. He passed away the very next year, in 2019, three days after the 81st anniversary of Kristallnacht, that night of broken glass. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Join us for this edition of Coastline. From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Alfred Schnog was a child during a time in Germany when you hid the fact that you were Jewish. No one was talking about Nazi death camps, not yet anyway, but he and his family learned to keep the fact they were Jewish to themselves. They did not want to be barred from common public spaces or forced to attend schools that kept them apart from non-Jewish Germans. Their neighbors knew, and eventually they stopped speaking to the Schnog family, afraid to associate with them. Once Nazis seized the family's business, his parents began plotting their escape. But before they could reach friendlier soil, a young Alfred Schnog watched through hotel curtains as Nazi soldiers and members of the SA, commonly known as stormtroopers and Hitler Youth, looted and destroyed Jewish-owned establishments. He was witnessing Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, and he would never forget it. The family escaped from Germany the next morning, more than eight decades ago. They boarded a train bound for the border with Holland. This edition of Coastline, in which he tells his story, and in which we briefly meet his wife Anita, was recorded in 2018. He tells of his family's escape from Nazi Germany, how they almost didn't get past German border guards, and what it was like to arrive in the United States with no knowledge of the English language. Alfred Schnog passed away in 2019, just three days after the 81st anniversary of Kristallnacht. Alfred Schnog, welcome to Coastline. Thank you very much, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us today. And also here is Anita Schnog, Alfred's wife. And we are, um, Mrs. Schnog, you are here to occasionally prompt Mr. Schnog in the event that there are lapses in dates about memory or words or that sort of thing. That's right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Mrs. Schnog. My pleasure. So we're going back now to the 1930s in Cologne, Germany. Did you have friends as a child who were not Jewish? Well, I didn't have friends in 1930 because that was the year of my birth, uh, actually. So uh, it took a little while before I had friends. But uh, as a young man, yes, we had friends with children of our neighbors, and uh, we had friends with children uh, of 
of our acquaintances, most of whom were Jewish. But uh, they were, you know, they were, we were like normal children. We were playing with, with other children in the neighborhood and uh, having a happy time. At what point do you remember needing to maybe hide the fact that you were Jewish? Well, it, it became, it was difficult at the time for Jews because there was a lot of anti-Semitism even before Hitler became into power. But when Hitler came into power in 1933, uh, things became uh, rather difficult. And uh, we, shortly after the Nazis promulgated the Nuremberg Laws, it became absolutely necessary to hide our Jewishness. And there were many occasions where uh, we were told by our parents that we had to be cautious about revealing the fact that we were Jewish. Uh, when the and so you they, would have grown up with that because you're, you're saying if 1933 is a marker then. Yes, oh, you definitely. Would have, you would have been two years old at that point. I was two years old, although uh, I perhaps didn't understand everything that was going on. But we certainly learned from our parents how we had to deal with the rest of the society and the rest of the people that we knew. Uh, shortly after uh, the Nuremberg Laws came out, uh, the Nazis put up or ordered signs to be put up. The sign said, Juden sind hier unerwünscht, and that means Jews here are not wanted. And uh, it had little meaning for us, uh, but it was explained by our parents that we had to uh, be cautious wherever we went and whatever establishments we entered where that sign was posted, and that, that sign was almost it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere that I can remember. What did being cautious mean to you as a young child? What did that mean? What were you afraid might happen? Well, we, of course, we were curious about that. Why can't we do this? My brother and I, my twin brother and I, uh, asked that question. And uh, we were told that, uh, that, that we were not really liked that we had to be careful about uh, not making, letting people know that we were Jewish. We actually wound up living an undercover life where we had to hide everything that was associated with Jewishness. And uh, you could feel it because we sensed at that time, and as we got a little older when we were uh, three, four, five years old, we noticed that the people that lived across the hall from us, for instance, who had been close friends or, or at least very hospitable, uh, suddenly there was, they were shying away from uh, associating with Jews or with us. And of course, it was because we were Jewish that they were. And was that the same family in which the, the patriarch, the man, was a member of the SA, which according to the Holocaust Remembrance Museum defines it as, you're going to be able to pronounce it better than I am, Storm, Storm can you say that Storm? word? Storm? Storm Batailugan. The Schutzabteilung. 
the stormtroopers or the essentially the Stromabteilung assault detachment the SAs yes the SA the Stromabteilung yes so this man no. across the hall no, is that no, a different no. family he, you know he was a civilian uh, i've forgotten what his position okay. was but uh, when they'd come home, usually in the evening before 1933 or even two or three years after, they were still very friendly to us. And then suddenly they didn't want to have any association with us. And what was the reason? Well, we were Jewish and it was dangerous for them to be known as associating with Jews. How did your parents explain that to you as a child? Well, they explained, obviously, that uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. They didn't want us to be involved in any uh, situations that would be embarrassing or that would cause difficulties for us or our family. And so they said, you have to understand them. They can get into trouble themselves if they were known to be associating with Jews, they'd have a difficult time. So th this is what happened. When we went to stores, for instance, and my mother, we had at that time rationing uh, because uh, foodstuffs were difficult to get. And, and we had close relationships with the storekeepers. And so uh, they knew we were Jewish. But they, the Jew, they, they let let us know, let my parents know in no uncertain terms, that they will help us. They will, with whatever they we needed, they would honor our ration cards. But uh, they uh, prefer that if we came, that we not say anything when we were in the store. That kind of thing. And th there was a point when you learned that a man across the hall in your apartment building was a member of the SA. And this was a guy who had been friendly with you. This is, you're shaking your head. Yes, and, because I don't think that that's true. I, I don't know how that got in there. Okay. The man across the hall was just a neighbor. Okay. And I don't know whether he was a part of the he, uh, Essay. Okay, I pulled that from an interview that you did with the Holocaust Remembrance Museum. So that might have oh, been a detail. That was that quite was, a long time ago. It yes. was a very long time ago, mm -hmm. yes. Um, so can you talk about the way Nazi children treated you? Because you did have, you had to be cautious around other children that you knew yes. were the children of Nazis. Oh, yes. I during, after 1933, Jews were not allowed to attend school with Aryan children. And so we had to establish our own schools. And it was, when it was time for us to uh, enter school, we had, uh, we, we had uh, teachers who were Jewish who had been fired from their positions because the Nazis did not want Jewish teachers to be teaching uh, Aryan children. And so we entered the Jewish schools when we did. Uh, when we came out of those schools, the children who were outside, uh, the German children, all knew that the children coming from the school were Jewish, and uh, they were chase they chase us. They throw rocks at us and be very 
uh, well, they would curse us in many different ways, you know, rotten Jews, dirty Jews, whatever they could say. And my brother and I became very, very good at running, <laughs> which was helpful in later years. Uh, but uh, You were never tempted to fight back well, or go after them, or were you? Well, tempted, no. We just wanted to get out of the way. We didn't want to be assaulted. You're listening to Coastline. This interview with Alfred Snoke was recorded in 2018. He passed away the following year, in 2019. Alfred Schnog is telling the story of his family's escape from Nazi Germany, and after this short break, we'll hear about the harrowing moment his family reached the border with Holland, only to come face to face with the Nazi guard, who said he would take Alfred and his brother. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline. Stay with us. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. We're talking today with Alfred Schnog about his childhood in Nazi Germany, and we're just about to get to his family's narrow escape into Holland and how the experiences of that part of German history has shaped his life and his thinking. And Alfred Schnog, just before we went to break, you were talking about how you and your brother learned to run really well mm-hmm. after being chased by. Uh, Aryan children, children of the Nazis who would throw stones at you. When you think back to that time leading up to Kristallnacht, how much do you think your parents tried to shelter you from their, from their deepest fears about what was happening? Well, they didn't try to shelter us, but uh, we knew that if we just lived a low life, not revealed who we were, that people wouldn't really know. So we, we had relatively easy lives. But we, we were cautioned. For instance, let me give you an example. There were many fine castles along the Rhine River, which you could visit. And we pestered our parents that we would like to go and see them. And uh, they, they finally, we finally broke them down. They were reluctant to go. Uh, because the Germans had that sign on there, Juden sind hier unerwünscht. Which, tell us again, means... Which means Jews here are not wanted. Mm -hmm. And so finally we broke down their resistance, and they cautioned us. They said, boys, we don't want to cause embarrassment, so when you go, uh, don't say that you're Jewish, obviously, and even when you go to the latrine, cover yourself because if they see that you've been circumcised, they will know that you're Jewish and you may be thrown out and who knows, we may be arrested. We don't know what will happen. So we were pretty well coached by our parents how to behave in that situation, how to stay undercover. 
there were other instances. Uh, there were instances where uh, we used to go to a beach in uh, Germany, where we in the Rhine River, where we used to go during the week with my mother. And uh, we had been going there, and when one day we showed up there, and that same sign was posted at the entrance there. And my mother said, oh, Madam, we've been coming here for many months. What does this mean? You know, we are Jewish. And the person said, oh, you know, this isn't meant for you. Uh, I know you. You can come in. Please bring your children, but don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. This is the kind of thing that we lived with daily. So we, we knew that we had to remain undercover and had to be cautious, but we still could continue our, or do the things that most others did. There was a day in school when some Nazi soldiers came to your class and they started reading off names. Tell yes, us about that. Yes, that's correct. Uh, one day uh, during our school day, day uh, there were two men in leather coats and and black boots came in and they announced the names of two of our fellow pupils, fellow students, and they said, we are taking you out of school, you're coming with us and we will take you to your parents and your parents and you will be uh, taken by us. Well, as children, we were flabbergasted that anybody could come in and literally arrest two of our pupils. And when we came home, we explained that what had happened to our parents, and they had made it clear that what was going on in Germany was that there were many Polish families who had uh, immigrated from Poland to Germany, uh, and they were hoping to make a life there or perhaps escape from Germany to some other country because in Poland there was a great deal of anti-Semitism as well. And uh, the Germans certainly didn't want any immigrants from Poland in Germany, particularly if they were Jewish, and they were going around arresting them and sending them back to Poland, perhaps to the concentration camps. I don't know that. But uh, these children were children of such parents, and they uh, rounded up these immigrants and sent them back home. An immigration policy which was pretty severe. They didn't want anything, that, anyone to come in that would spoil the Aryan uh, supremacy that existed in Germany. Do you remember as a child first learning about concentration camps and what they were? Uh, yes, I do because people were arrested and uh, we learned that where they were kept. Some, some went to in Czechoslovakia to Theresienstadt. Uh, and uh, then when they were treated brutally, but usually came back in two or three weeks or four weeks, they were released. And from obviously what they told us about what went on there, we knew that this was not a nice place to be because they were under the Gestapo, they're being severely questioned. We learned all this from our parents. And my parents used to have a... Uh, uh, you used to, they used to invite their family and guests to come over in the afternoons and have some coffee and, and cake. And uh, during that time, we were encouraged to be with the adults and listen to their conversation. So from that conversation, 
we understood and we heard what was going on. We also learned that many people who had lost their jobs and couldn't tend to their families, who couldn't uh, uh, make a living for their families, decided to commit suicide. And it's the first time in our lives as uh, five, six-year-olds that we learned about suicide, that people would be willing to take their lives. And at that some, was our At some point, the Nazis seized your family's, your father's business. And they allowed him to keep working there so that he could teach them how to run that business. Do you remember that happening and what that was like for your family? Yes, I do remember that. Uh, the Nazis confiscated the business my father worked in. The business was owned by a Jewish family, and they were in the business of selling strategic materials, uh, metals and ores, which were really needed by the uh, German uh, uh, military uh, and industrial establishment. And when they confiscated that business, they needed to learn how to continue the business. So they insisted that my father and his colleagues, all of whom were Jewish, would remain there until they taught them how to conduct that business. And my father knew that it was just a matter of time because once they knew something about that business and how to conduct it, it would be he would be fired. He would no longer be able to work there. So my parents started very early on, and when he was uh, in that position, looking for a place to go, to immigrate, to get out of Germany. And they uh, looked wherever they could. My mother was an ardent Zionist. She would have loved to have gone to to what is now Israel, but the border was completely closed because it was under a mandate of the Great Britain and they would not allow immigrants to come in uh, to that country. Uh, there were very few people, very few countries around the world that would accept Jews. Actually, they held a conference. Uh, Avion. In Avion. Yes, and that's Anita Snog's voice you're hearing, right. by the way. <laughs> Go ahead. And they told all those people at the Avian Conference, come on, take, take as many Jews as you want. We're happy to let them out if you give them a visa. And there were very few who accepted. There were some who accepted a few Jews. <laughs> there was one country which was quite remarkable, small country of the Dominican Republic, took about 100,000 Jews, uh, which is amazing, absolutely amazing that they did so. And uh, So it was when the Nazis confiscated your father's business that your parents really started planning, all right, we, we need to get out. Exactly. Do you remember? So they, they figured out that Holland was a place they could go because there was an office. That's correct. Connected to, to your father's company that's, in Holland. That's correct. The, we had an office in Holland, and uh, my father was very well known to them, and he asked them if I can get out of Germany, would you be able to employ me? And they said, sure, if you can bring your family out and come by, we'd be happy to have you here. Uh, but getting a visa to go there was almost impossible, but still, uh, he knew that he had a place to go if he could get out of Germany. Do you remember uh, what made your parents say, tonight's the night? 
were what was was there a defining moment or had they just no. had the plan just reached fruition it, it was just coincidental there was an opportunity that he had to visit holland on business and uh, he told his superiors there at that time they were nazis that he was going to take his family and they were going, and while he was on business they were going to we were going to be there for a vacation, a week of vacation before we came back. And so uh, my parents said, this is the opportunity we have to get out of Germany. Let's take it. And they uh, call, they made arrangements for us to leave Germany on uh, November 10th, just that- coincidentally that they so that was up. a quint, and that was the same night you checked into a hotel. The uh, on the November 9th, because we had no furniture left in our apartment yet, and we got out of our apartment, we moved to the Dome Hotel, which was situated right next to the Dome Cathedral. And uh, we were very excited to go be going to Holland for a vacation, and obviously my parents were happy to get out and they were anxious to get out and uh, my brother and I had a difficult time falling asleep that night in the hotel my parents put us to bed and we had just fallen asleep when our parents came and woke us up and they said boys come with us and they took us to the window of the hotel the window the curtains of the the window was was covered with drapes, and they put us between the opening of the drapes in the window, and we looked outside, and what we saw is almost indescribable. There were uh, SA stormtroopers marching down the street. There were Nazi youth walking uh, down the street. They were picking up rocks, throwing them into the store windows, of the uh, stores that were on the street, and these were all high-end shopping streets, the kind that you uh, can imagine would be at Madison Avenue in New York. And when they broke the store windows, they stepped in, and these were, a lot of them are Jewish stores, and these were the stores that they broke the windows of. They stepped into the store, they gathered up whatever merchandise they could see, they threw it out, and I remember as as it was tossed out, it would shatter. For instance, the china would shatter on the cobblestone streets in front of the store. And all the, uh, the crystals and things like that were just thrown out. And while they were doing it, they were shouting gleefully about how they uh, about the nasty Jews, the dirty Jews, and uh, uh, this ter- serves you right, and they were marching up and down that street. And How did you a, feel watching this? Well, we were amazed, you know. Why would anybody be destroying such property? And it just didn't make any sense to us. We Were Were you afraid at that point that you might not get no. out of Germany? You no, we weren't, weren't afraid. Fearful. We just couldn't understand what was what was happening. Our parents tapped us on our shoulder while we were standing there, and they said, boys, never forget what you see here tonight. And I'll tell you, 80 years ago, I haven't forgotten it. The whole site, everything is there. It's as vivid as if it happened yesterday. And uh, 
The next morning... And the next morning, my father called up my grandfather and said, uh, we're going to leave this morning and a train is leaving and the train station was just opposite the, uh, the cathedral, so it wasn't very far. And my grandfather said, you aren't, you are still here? Take your boys and your family, get out immediately. You know, they've burned the synagogue here in Deutz. Deutz was a community adjacent to Cologne, and uh, they, uh, they are raiding uh, our homes and tearing, uh, the Nazis are coming in and uh, destroying the furniture of, of our neighbors and throwing things out on the street. Uh, please get out and get out as quickly as you can. And uh, that was a surprise that this was going on not just in Cologne, but it was happening in other parts of Germany. And this was also your grandfather's synagogue? Yes, it was. That he was talking about, they it's burned not, Right, down. and we used to go there uh, weekly to visit with them. In fact, we had one, imp- I have to go back a little bit, but we used to go visit o- the, and go across the uh, Hohenzollern Bridge in Cologne that went over to Deutz, and, and there was one adventure that we had, or what I now recognize was rather important in our, our lives. When we were crossing that bridge, my father once stopped his car, and he had a pistol, and he took the pistol out of his pocket, and he disassembled it, and he stepped out of the car and threw the pieces into the Rhine River. and. We asked my father, why was he doing this? You know, a pistol, we could have, my brother and I could have played with that if he didn't want it anymore. Why did he throw it away? And my father told us that the Gestapo had ordered that Jews could not own firearms or weapons and had to be turned into a Gestapo. That's why he was getting rid of it. And now, you know, looking back at that, it was a lesson that he taught us, and one that I understood, that my father was going to resist the Nazis, which I didn't understand at that time, but which, in retrospect, as I look back at it, that was the moment that we first realized that my parents were going to resist the Nazis. You boarded a train the morning after Kristallnacht and headed for the border the German border with correct. Holland, and you encountered some Nazi officers at the border. You had your your papers. You were set to go across to your father's office in Holland. You had that was all laid out, the plans. You were ready to go, and then they stopped you. That is correct. Uh, they they boarded the train that we were on because the Nazis had sealed the borders with all neighboring countries. And when they boarded the train, they asked to see our our passports. And we had a passport. We didn't have any visas to go anywhere, but we had a passport. And the passports were all marked, of the Jews, were all marked with a letter, a red letter J. And so they separated the Jews in the train and took all the Jews off the train and marched us to a local jail right near the Dutch border. And there we were incarcerated in a jail cell with about 20 or so of the, of the other Jews that were on the train. 
And that was an experience which was something that we didn't expect. And it was uh, stressful, I suppose. That, that jail cell had no furnishings. All it had was a commode. And uh, it was embarrassing for my brother and I to uh, relieve ourselves in that jail cell and that one commode. But, our, but the passengers who were with us uh, were kind enough to take off their coats and shield us while we, if we had to relieve ourselves. And we're going to have to finish this story when we come back from the break. Okay. You did eventually make it across the border, but it took a yes. little bit. You're listening to Coastline. Alfred Schnow, born in Cologne, Germany in 1931, is sharing the story of his family's escape from the Nazis in 1938 and how that part of his childhood shaped his life. We continue the story after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Today we're hearing the story of one man's escape from Nazi Germany with his family when he was only seven years old. Alfred Schnog remembers Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, and the embedded anti Semitism in German culture. He recorded this interview with us in 2018, passing away the following year, just three days after the 81st anniversary of Kristallnacht. We left the last break in a jail cell at the border of Germany and Holland. How did yes. you get out of that jail cell? Well, we were questioned, all the passengers were questioned, and those who had visas to get out of the country, out of Germany, they let them go. And uh, my father was able to persuade them that he was in business, and he was going on business to Amsterdam, and they... Uh, after checking whether that story was true, they led us to the border. When we got to the border, we spent about an hour or two waiting for the customs inspectors, the German customs inspectors, to go through our clothing and our baggage to make sure that we weren't taking any contraband out of Germany, which was strictly prohibited. And when that was done, uh, one of the uh, they, we were waiting to cross, and one, uh, we were standing there with two German policemen or Gestapo. They were all dressed in black with boots up to, uh, up to their knees, and one of them looked at my parents, and they said, you may go, but your children, we're going to take them and take them to a camp nearby, and when you come back, you can collect them there. Well, my brother and I were shocked to hear that. 
Uh, we you're were going on. You're seven years old. Seven years point. old, but we were going on vacation with my mm-hmm. parents, and we didn't. We were frightened to be separated from them, and we started to cry, and we were clearly, clearly distressed and upset, and um, my mother was very upset, and she looked at the Nazis, and she was accustomed to carrying with her in her purse a small paring knife, which she used to peel apples, which was pretty customary in Europe at the time, to peel the fruit that they took along. And she said to them, my children are coming with us, and if you try to stop them, I'm going to cut their throats, and then I'm going to cut my throat. Well, there was a few moments of silence, I don't know how long it lasted. Uh, my brother, I know what my feelings were. I just wanted to be with my parents. Uh, I don't think that the thought ever occurred to me that my mother would actually cut our throats and kill us. That just thought never entered my mind. You knew she was bluffing for the sake of the Nazis. I'm not sure that she was bluffing. You don't know that I she was I think she was downright serious but uh, if the nazis had tried to take the two of you there was no doubt in my mind she she would have killed you there's no question about it there were so many jews who would rather sacrifice their children rather than have them live in nazi germany and then they would and some did as they committed suicide some of the families did so and we had heard all that but it didn't occur to me at that moment that she would do it at that moment. And finally, one of the Nazis said to my parents, take your brats and get out of here. Now, when I look back at it, that was the moment of my mother's resistance against the Nazis. And I'm very proud of her for doing so because if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here today and my grandchildren wouldn't be here today. <laughs> my life would be very different if there would have been a life. Your mother was that. a deeply courageous woman. Tremendously. Uh, you know, I can only see it in retrospect, how anybody could have done that. I was seven years old. I couldn't see it in the broader sense of what was going on. But I sure know it now, and I know what what happened. So Now, we're going to get to, you, you lived in Holland for about a year and a half and then went to London before you sailed aboard correct. Uh, the Britannic That's to, correct. to the United States. But first, I'm getting a lot of questions from people who are asking different variations of essentially the same question. And I think it's important that we address this. Mark from Wilmington called and asked, does Mr. Schnog think there are any parallels between the current administration's tone in regards to immigrants and what he experienced in Nazi Germany. We got a question from David who writes, please ask Mr. Schnog if he sees parallels between the 1930s in Germany and the Trump era as it relates to fascism. Uh, Judson writes, uh, do you see anything that would be similar in America today with the rise of the alt-right and white supremacists that seem so different variations on parallels today? What, what do you have? Because you have a very strong opinion about that. I have a very strong opinion. There are no parallels. And I'm, I want to emphasize that. Germany 
under the Nazi regime was a dictatorship ruled by one man who had control of everything. We are living in a country that is ruled by the laws of, the con- of our country, the Constitution, its Bill of Rights, and that is supreme here. And it is the laws of this country that, uh, that keep us free and safe and make our lives tolerable and livable. We don't commit crimes against uh, other religious groups. That doesn't happen here. Uh, there, yes, there are there are people who are anti-Semitic. There always will be, I suppose. There are people who hate other races, and I suppose that will continue to be the case every now and then. But we have laws that protect us, and this country has had that protection since its inception, and there is no comparison. And I don't care who the president is, and uh, and it you cannot make, draw that difference. Now the immigration issue, likewise, it's the same thing. We have laws that govern us, and our Congress makes the laws of immigration, and they they are followed, and and that's that. In Germany. This didn't happen. Uh, the Gestapo is what ruled, and that was it. So, so don't don't try even to to put the two together. It just doesn't happen. Anita Schnog, far more concerning, you say, is what's happening in Europe. Yes, anti-Semitism, which never disappeared. Uh, is on the rise again. Uh, We've made several trips to Europe, and we've heard it from many people. We did a uh, Danube River cruise, and we had the opportunity to take several tours into Jewish communities, and we were told by the president of the uh, synagogue in Budapest, which was one of the stops that we made, that anti-Semitism in Budapest was on the rise. It's also on the rise in Austria, and there are particular problems in France. An 85-year-old Holocaust survivor was murdered and burned there just last week, and that is not the first case of uh, that kind of anti-Semitic murder uh, in France. but if there is something that it needs fighting against, it's anti-Semitism that is spreading throughout the world. We have a question from Shirley who writes, I grew up in Omaha with neighbors who had been in the camps. They absolutely refused to talk about it, hid the tattooed numbers on their arms, told their kids to be quiet as well. Were they warned not to talk about their experience, she asks. My guess is, no, they weren't warned. Mm-hmm. I think they're just unable to do so. and. They don't want their children to have to relive what they went through. I've heard many stories similar to that, and it's very difficult for uh, uh, parents to, elderly parents who went through these things, to, uh, to, to to have their children understand everything that happened. I'm very sorry about that because I think the children are good spokespersons for their grandparents or for the people who went through this. And I wish that they had 
spoken to them about it and said to them, I'd like to relate those stories because people have to learn that. And of course, that's what I'm doing. And Shirley actually continues. She says, I, I've always felt America might have gone a different direction with later genocides in other countries if they had spoken up and educated all of us. She says, I was in seventh grade the first time I saw the photos in Life magazine of the camp victims. Those images have always haunted me. Oh, I can understand that. And uh, she's absolutely right, what she says. And there have been so many other genocides. Now, whether we could have made a difference in the other genocides, I don't know whether that's possible. And it may not have been possible, but we could have, we certainly would understand it better. We understand the world better. And uh, it's so important for people to know what happened in uh, those years so that- And can you articulate why? I, I know it seems obvious to some people, but why do we have Holocaust Remembrance Day? What is it about understanding this part of human history? What about remembering that changes today for us? Well, it's very important that we know how these things occur and how they began and so that we can know these things and we can understand the uh, the horrors that people are going through around the world and there are many places there right now I'm thinking about what happened in Burma for instance with uh, Muslims that have been thrown out gone over to Bangladesh and uh, being uh, tortured again when they try to go home it's it, our understanding of that is what is so important. This world is not such a lovely, great place. And by understanding what is happening around the world, we would understand better how lucky and how fortunate we are to live in this country where we are ruled by the laws of our Constitution. And our, and I mean, that is so important. So it's part of our it's part of history that needs to be told and retold uh, so that uh, we understand that we are in a special nation. Now, of course, here we are with only about three minutes left. And your story, Mr. Schnog, is, is probably going to take several editions to fully tell. But can you just tell us then, you're aboard the Britannic, you're sailing for the United States. Were you afraid at that point, or was your family breathing a sigh of relief? We were not afraid at that time. We were excited. As a child, coming to the United States, seeing the skyscrapers we had learned so much about, uh, seeing the Statue of Liberty, which we heard a lot about, and then we arrived in the United States. It was great. I was one of the lucky ones who didn't get caught up in the horrors of the Holocaust. Uh, escaping just as the door closed behind us. So that's that was the feeling and how I think of arriving here. But your grandparents and your aunts weren't so lucky. No, they weren't. We learned shortly after the Nazis, uh, well, we actually learned in 1942 after the, uh, quite some time after that, that they had been taken to Wisterburg and from there uh, put on a train to Sobibor where they were gassed and, and lost their lives. I'm so sorry. You got out of Holland shortly before 
Holland. Uh, yes. We got off of Holland. We arrived in the United States on April 1st, 1940. 40. And 30 days thereafter, 35 days thereafter, the Nazis broke Holland's neutrality and invaded that country. And that was the that was the end for or hope for all the Jews that lived there. And they were soon uh, arrested in Holland and taken away to uh, the concentration camps. And, and escape then became impossible. So we were really lucky to get out. And you learned English once you arrived on American soil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was interesting. We knew nothing of English. We spoke Dutch and we spoke German. My parents sent us to a camp in, uh, in the Catskills. The name of the camp was the Surprise Lake Camp. And I have to tell you, uh, after I married Anita, she told me that she had also gone to that camp. And it was just amazing. But of course, she didn't go at the time that I went, but <laughs> thereafter. So coincidences always happen. Yeah. But after three weeks being in that camp, my parents came to visit us. And he, they spoke to my counselor, and, my, and they looked at my counselor and said, you know, how are the boys doing? And the counselor said, well, what do you mean, how are they doing? They're doing really well. He said, but they don't speak English. And the counselor said, uh, madam, I said, you misunderstand. Should they speak English better than you do because they have no accent. <laughs> and they get along fine with the bunkmates. Well, we had learned the language in those three weeks without uh, And that. that's this edition of Coastline. Alfred Schnog, Anita Schnog, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank well, you, thank Rachel. you for having us. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode and Rachel Keith produced. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline hosted by or just send an email to coastline at whqr.org. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilbert for Coastline.